Hello, Agnes. Hey, Robin. Well, uh, you've had a busy week. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so I had a New Yorker profile come out on Monday, and uh, I think we, you and I agreed that there was, there seems to be exactly one interesting philosophical question that's raised by the event at the center of the profile, which is, you know, I had, I was married and I had this um, uh, encounter with a student of mine uh, and I had to make a decision, like, do I, you know, keep on going on the marriage path or do I pursue this new romantic possibility? And uh, the question that we want to talk about is what... What is the kind of thinking that goes into making that decision, and what would it be to uh, to make the decision rationally? And also, what are the um, what are the distinctive ways that we talk to ourselves about those those decisions? So, the thing that struck you about it was that I characterized the prospect of just going on with my marriage as before as a kind of death or as a kind of like feeling trapped or feeling like I was going through the motions, like I'll be going through the motions. And I think that's characteristic of this sort of, uh, um, this sort of a decision that, um, turning down a, uh, an option, an alternative feels very deadening of the course that you were taking before, which you might've been okay with before. And we can have one other driving example here that I personally experienced, although a long time ago, uh, which was I was a researcher at a, uh, you know, computer lab at NASA and then Lockheed, and I wanted to go back to school. And I kept thinking about going back to school. And then at some point I applied and then, you know, I had the discussion with my wife, like, is this a wise idea? So. When I actually went back to school, it was with two kids age zero and two. And so she was thinking, well, this is such a great time to go back to school. Look, we have all these obligations here and, and difficult times ahead. And I remember just feeling very like driven, like, no, I just have to do this. Okay. And I think I remember being somewhat reluctant to go through a calculation of whether this was a good idea. Okay. I didn't want to go there with that. I just felt like my life was on the line. Like my life had been building up to like, this was a path that I could go through in life was to become an academic and do ideas. And it was just really important to me. And I needed to roll those dice and please could my wife just go with me on that. And it's analogous to your choice in the sense that there's a choice in front of you and there's sort of a risk you're considering taking. There's a relatively safe route and then there's a risky route. And the risky route would seem like un, not, not wise by sort of a usual common sense perspective or, uh, and then maybe advisors are telling you, hey, that's not so smart. And then rather than like trying to do a calculation based on the risk and, and sort of a, you know, rational sort of assessment, there's this emotion, there's this sense of sort of the, the wonderful possibility that's there and that you kind of have to have it or you'll be dead, right? Or like the stakes are just in your mind or your emotions just exaggerated so far as to push you to take this. And even 
to not be willing to like be be analytic or rational about it. No, not for this. This I just have to do, right? So, right. so I see that as analogous to your choice, although I'm sure it'll be different. Yeah, good. So I want to. So first, I want to make an observation about our two examples: is that neither of us chose to give as an example the time we went the other way. <laughs> right. So and I think that's that's quite telling. So I think that, and this is to go into a theory of these choices. I think that choices of this kind are choices where we can see ahead of time that after the fact, if we go back and we talk about the choice, um, there's one, one of the two decisions we'll be able to say, I did it for this reason, this good reason, uh, like love or, uh, you know, reorienting my career. Um, but the other way, if you have to explain why you did it, if you went the other way, the way you would explain it is by citing a constraint, not by citing a value. So you would say, well, I had these two kids, by the way, I don't think zero is an age your kid can have. Um, Less than one. I mean, yeah, there's a, at some point they'll one, and then before that, they're zero. That's first between zero and one. And if they were zero, they wouldn't exist. Um, but anyway, you know, I had these two kids and... Uh, you know, my wife was against it or, you know, well, I was married and I was worried about my kids. It's always the kids, right? That pull you away from doing great things. Um, and, uh, that's how we would, that's how we would describe it. And at least Aristotle has this account of choices of this kind that he doesn't, he's not imagining these big transformative ones that we're talking about, but he says, like, if you're on a ship and there's a bunch of, um, cargo on the ship, but there's a storm. And you throw the cargo overboard because of the storm, you're less likely to sink. And someone asks, like, why did you do it? Why did you throw the cargo overboard? He says it's a mixed voluntary action, which is to say it's not fully voluntary. There's a constraint there. You would say, well, because of the storm, you didn't want to throw it overboard. You didn't want to lose the cargo. For instance, if you're responsible for transporting this cargo, right, you would want to explain. Like, I look, at, I had to do it. I didn't want to do it. Okay. So it seems to me that there's a really, that what's really interesting about these choices is that they actually seem to be a place where the concept of free will hits the ground in, in terms of we experience it. One of these ways of deciding is free and the other ways of deciding is unfree. But we, we feel like if I make that other choice, I'm going to explain it by saying there was a constraint. I mean, I, we've discussed my theory of the sacred before, so I'll just mention that it does apply here in this case. That is... Uh, if you take a far view of the situation, it's a conflict of fundamental values. And if you take a near view of a situation, you'd be focused on the practical constraints and the practical considerations. And it's a choice to frame it in some degree. That is, if you're going to make the safe choice, you're going to frame it as a sort of near mode sort of decision where you're rational, reasonable, and you calculated the right thing to do. If you're going to make the other choice, you're going to frame it more as a sacred value at stake. And that it was less about the particulars and more about the fundamental, you know, alliance toward the sacred thing, which for you was love. And in my case, it was this possibility of, of a grand career. Right. So, I mean, the way that I was putting it in effect is if you imagine yourself looking at this decision from afar, right, in the future, you imagine yourself looking back on it 20 years later. And if you had chosen to stay with your job and I had chosen to stay in my marriage, we, we're imagining the way that that would look would be kind of paltry or kind of, uh, as I'm putting it, constrained. Um, so from afar, it doesn't look very good. 
it might look good from, from close up, but it doesn't look good from far. So I think that's right. But I also just think that this is a really, like, to put it in terms of, um, it sort of makes me think that it's like your theory of the sacred, it fills in the blanks where the rest of those blanks are filled in by an economic analysis. So, like, this decision, that the very idea that one, um, one of these decisions, you're pursuing a good thing, love or ambitious career, and the other side, you're being constrained by uh, risks to your family. Um, it should be and to, should be like uh, 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 unacceptable to the economist, right? Who's like, look, there's always constraints. There's always trade-offs, right? And on both sides, there's going to be pluses and minuses, and you just, you know, it's just cost-benefit analysis, right? But in fact, the way you, you don't experience it that way. You experience it as like, here there are benefits, and here all I would be doing would be avoiding costs. I wouldn't be pursuing benefits. Um, so I have, so yeah. I have two datums that I've collected in support of our discussion. One is a quote by Kahneman, uh, you know, Nobel Prize winning psychologist, who says, you probably heard it, nothing in life is as important as you think it is while you're thinking about it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the idea is that our minds are driven in order to exaggerate uh, some things in order to get us to overcome sort of immediate obstacles uh, to push us past some immediate constraint. And so that, that might be uh, in order to move us past mere practical consideration, then our minds exaggerate the importance of things such that in this sort of situation, we're seeing like our life's at stake. And if we don't do this thing, our life is over, right? That, that's an exaggeration there. And so that seems to fit with that. Kahneman quote. I don't think quote's true. Well, that's an, but it's perceived to be true. So it's certainly interesting. Why, why do mo so many people resonate with the quote, whether or not it's true? Well, so first of all, later when you do a Twitter poll and see whether people think it's true, but uh, I, 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 I'm suspicious of whether people are going to say it's true. I, I, I think it would be true if he had said many things in life are not as important. Okay, is nothing. Yeah. That's great. That's okay. a very sharp play. Okay, uh, sure. And uh, I mean, I guess I think, um, you know, you might think uh, there, there are like first of all, extra practical context that is non-practical. So like, if you're just doing. I don't know, doing math or something. Maybe math is actually really important and you're only appreciating how important it is when you're doing it. Or maybe you're watching a play about like the tragedy of the human experience and you can finally grasp this super important thing, but only while you're watching the play. It's not implausible to me that, um, okay. that we would grasping it correctly at those times. Aristotle's idea would be like God is so important and like we can just barely grasp how important God is, but like for a little bit of time we can. So it's way more important than we think it is even when we're thinking about it. But I think the question is about like when you're making the decision and there are, you know, uh, pluses and minuses to that decision, do you overrate the importance of the decision while you're thinking about it? And I guess there, even there, I don't agree. I think sometimes it's more important that we think about it as, and we downplay the importance of it so as to not stress ourselves out about the decision. I just think we do about things. So the other thing is I did a Twitter poll on our question here. I said, okay. when facing big life changes where you have a strong emotion pushing you in one direction while the usual common sense and advice of associates uh, pushes in the other direction, or at least advises you to wait longer before deciding what percent of the time do you go with your emotions? And I have four options. One of which is that you never face such a choice. And that's at the moment, only 10% uh, of people say that Okay. Uh, out of 120 so far, we'll see over the next day. And 
then among the other three options, it's pretty evenly divided. It's actually like a little more in the middle region, which is larger. So I have less than 30%, 30 to 70, more than 70%. And basically people are uh, sort of uniformly spread across this probability range. Some people like usually go with their emotion and some people usually go against it. Okay. So, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about, I, I've, I've been off Twitter, so I haven't seen your yeah. Uh, but uh, one thing is interesting about the way you framed it is you just said emotion. You didn't say positive or negative emotion, right? So, um, like, because it could be that your emotion is fear. Um, and everyone says, no, go ahead. Go do that public speaking thing. And you're like, really, oh, oh, my, my, my son who's going to face the choice of whether he does zip lines when he goes with his grandma to Costa Rica. And everyone's going to be pressuring him. Uh, come on, Matthew, you can do it. You can you can do the zip lines, and terror is going to be rising in him, and he's going to have to decide which of those things he's going to go with. Um, do very very strong fear of height. Uh, so that would be an example, right? But I think um, the examples that both of us gave are positive things where you see a positive value. Um, uh, I suspect that people are more ready to think of themselves as motivated by positive emotion as against group pressure than motivated by negative emotion. So. Um, uh, but um, um, but those results sound a bit like pretty close to the the where one would want to consider the people are making a random choice hypothesis. Right, right. So that people just find it hard to think about these choices. So I think is another way to say this. Like, yeah, this is just a you know almost existential choice that people face sometimes, where the choice is tied up with their identity and their sense of themselves and. The consequence of the choice will be whoever makes the choice after the will will be a different person depending on what choice they make. Yeah, so I I think that I think existential is the right word, but then I think we should go back to my point about free will. Um, that is, I think that the thought the person who makes this choice will be a different person. Um, that's just not equally the case whichever way you go. Um, and I just meant that the two different versions will end up oh, get different, two different people. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Right. So it's like, I think that there's sometimes decisions that are so big that we don't what a way that I would be inclined to analyze some of those cases is like, we don't actually have the resources that we need to make the decision. Um, and we're aware of that. And uh, uh, we don't even know how to think about our ignorance, right? So you might, you might, um, you know, there might be there might be uncertainties with any decision. There are uncertainties, right? Um, and you can calculate those in to your decision. Right. That's not a problem. But to not have the resources is to not even be able to do that. To not even be able to put the uncertainties before you in any kind of stable way. Um, so, I, like, I think that's what's happening is you're facing a decision that you that is um, more. Um, you don't you don't quite feel like you can uh, you ha you have the resources to make the decision, and somehow when we face those decisions, at, at, like at least at least when describing them in retrospect when they worked out because that's that's the situation that we're both in. Um, I think there's this tendency to describe it as though had I made the other choice, it wouldn't have been a free choice, which is almost like saying I had to do what I did. And that is how you you put it. I had to, right? right. This is the only thing I could freely choose. Um, 
so that like in some sense these decisions they so much don't make sense to the person who's making them but the person who's making them is is not inclined to treat them as a decision it's like a choice between free will and not free will you can't choose not free will but it's not making sense right so for me it it feels like in the molar decision what you're less focused on is calculating and you're more focused on whether how closely you're aligned with the various social pressure that's going to pull you away from maybe the risky choice. As it feels to me like what I'm mainly doing is is going with like this advice advisory people advising saying, hey, be cautious, be careful, pull back. And then in one stance I could be like trusting them and saying, okay, yeah, I, I can't judge very well. Let me defer to you and I'll I'll listen to you and, and go with you. And on the other hand, I'm trusting me. I'm I'm more saying, no, this thing inside me is just saying I need to do this. And that seems to me the, the more, it's less about a calculation. It's more about whether I'm going with this part of me that just insists or whether I'm going to suppress that or, or, or sort of let that be less important than these people around me. So it seems to me that in these cases, it's really important what people around you, you have to advise you and how much you just trust them. But I think that that framing is not so different from the, there's the free will choice and the not free will choice. That is, there's a choice I want to make and there's a choice people around me want to make. Which choice am I going to make? Obviously, it's the one I want to make. Um, Obvious. No, I, I don't I don't think it's going to be true that in every case the person goes with that. But if they don't go with that, they're not going to tell the story the way you're telling it. That's what I'm saying. We're telling the story that came out a certain way, right? And and when, and when you and I tell that story, we say, well, the other choice was the social pressure choice. But had we made that other choice, we wouldn't characterize it that way, I think. Right, so how we would describe it more as I had this momentary temptation. Exactly. And... uh for a few minutes at least, I thought I was going to do this thing. And then I came to my senses. Exactly. And realized that that was pretty stupid. And that we must all have stories like that too. Exactly. There are, Wait, uh, don't say, oh, when I decided to cave into pressure to do something that I saw no value in doing, and I've been living my life doing this pointless thing ever since then, right? No one, no one tells that story. So the way, the very way we frame this story is from has it has a kind of um survivorship bias in it right that's that's the way we t- we're telling the choice we're laying out the choice right way that you only lay it out in retrospect if you took one of the options and it succeeded but now that we have these two ways of describing that we can pull it together into a unified story and say there's this moment where a part of you wants to do something transformative yeah something that will just change who you are and what your life is like and part of you doesn't. And the part of you that doesn't is probably going to be more supported by, you know, allies and common sense. And then, you know, there's a fork. And I even think of like, you know, the famous conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus or whatever. There are these conversion moments where people look back and say that was a pivotal moment because I made a choice that changed me or revealed sort of this aspect of myself that wasn't highlighted before. Yeah, I mean, I think once you've now strayed back, it's really hard to to stably 
describe them in a way that is neutral between the two um the two ways that are tied to the two choices and so once you start talking about conversion moments i mean you've gone down one road right that's that that person doesn't see themselves paul doesn't see himself having a choice so let me give the contrary example that like when i made the choice to go to caltech to graduate school um that was basically a year or two after i had applied previously to going to history and philosophy of science departments and I had applied and been accepted and even sent in an acceptance letter saying I would go. And then a few days later, I go, no, this isn't right. I shouldn't do this. Mm. And I chose not to go off to graduate school in history and philosophy of science and waited longer. And then I pivoted to applying to economics departments, you see, a year or two later. And so that was this other choice not made. Could have been. <laughs> right? I could have. And that's uh, right. okay. Okay. And so, so I can see both those choices pretty similar there, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And right. So you, you have a story. I don't have a story like that. Um, but you have a story, um, in effect of going the other way. I mean, one thing that this suggests though, is like, suppose you had, st you know, been like, no, I'm not going to do this. I mean, what are the chances of like a year later, you would have been like, well, maybe I should try for this other kind of grad school. Right. It'd be that just there was something persistently pushing you in that direction. And, you know, if you had, if you and your wife had decided, no, this is too risky, it still might have popped up like another year later. Um, at, at that point, you were already an old student. So you'd just be a year older. Okay. Right, right. And that's a story sometimes told by the people who are advising you caution and wait, which is to say, well, it might be there's just some underlying pressure here. And if you, you know, hold off on this one, another one will come along. If you get three in a row, then maybe you'll you'll take those as a sign. I guess you really want to make a change. And then you realize it's more about wanting to make a change than the particular options in front of you. So it's famous like a story that people often, when they're young, like get married to somebody and it was less that they wanted to marry that person that they wanted to get married. Right. And then they might tell a mistake. I made, I married the wrong person, even though I really wanted to get married. And you might say, well, you were less aware of what exactly it is you wanted then. And that's part of the choice. You know, you get an option in front of you, it's really attractive, but you don't actually know what a part that, what op, what about that option is so attractive to you and you might be confused. Right. And uh, like, I definitely got a, a lot of advice to wait and to like slow things down and just think about it and, um, and to me, that felt like, well, you're just asking me to um, stall. You're, that's right. what you want. You're, you're pro-stalling. Um, and I, it's interesting. That's an interesting kind of advice because it often is sort of seems sort of low cost. Like, why not wait and get more information? And sometimes there's a very specific reason why you can't wait. Right. The boat for the new world is going to leave in one hour. You're either on it or you're not, right? No more stalling. But in many contexts, you can you can stall. Um, and I think you can potentially stall there for a very long time with decisions. You can stall for years. And right. it, it, there's, it's a little, there's a little bit of a problem. At what point do you say, okay, now I have enough information? Because maybe with these decisions, you never have enough information. That is, you're never going to really know what would your life have been like if you went this way versus what would your life have been like if you 
went that way. At some point, you have to cut off the information collection process um, and just make a decision. But there is a real question about whether there would ever be a rational cutoff moment. Like, once you start stalling, why do you ever stop? So you've seen the movie The Music Man, I think. No, I have not seen it. Okay. should see it somehow. Anyway, okay. it's, it's a story about a con man who comes to a town trying to convince people to buy a bunch of musical instruments. But it, I think, it ha if I remember correctly, it has an element similar to many con stories, which is that you're trying to tempt people to take a risky, apparently risky action right. as the con person. And often what you try to do is to construct a deadline to, uh, to force them to make a choice earlier than they might otherwise want to make it uh, in order to push them over the edge to to go with the con. Uh, and so that sort of story suggests that there's a substantial risk of deciding too early. And that maybe if somebody's pushing you to decide too early, that's a kind of a bad sign about the setup. Right. So like, I guess I think, I, I, I think that both things are true, namely people pushing you to decide early can be a way to manipulate you and people pushing you to stall can also be a way to manipulate you. Um, and like, if I look at it in retrospect now, right. Um, and you, and you are inclined to talk in a similar way. I feel like, okay, I had this like maybe artificially clear and kind of idealized image of love in this period where if we'd waited long enough, I'm sure that the, 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 the gold on that would have faded as it did. In fact, right. You had this probably artificially inflated idea of a kind of career you could have. And at some point you would have been like, okay, being an academic, is like not so much greater than the thing I'm doing. Right. Um, and, and so there's a way in which asking you to wait is like waiting for the shine on that to go away. And one way to characterize that is, look, they're just trying to get you to be rational. Like you have an idealized image now and they want you to have a less, a more realistic image. But idealism is a really strong motivator um, at, for achieving good. <laughs> um, and so it's not obvious to me that you should always welcome that loss, the loss of the shine. That is, you should, that you should always want that to happen before you would make the decision. So this is related to preying on the young. That is, young people often don't know that much about the world and its various options, mm -hmm. and they're tempted to be more idealistic. And this allows the opportunity for people to prey on the young, either prey on them romantically, say, to get them involved with somebody older, or to prey on them career-wise to get them to commit to some sort of career option. Like they come on your boat as a sailor or uh, yeah. be an actor or whatever it is, right? And we, we have sort of a conflicting relationship with this, whether to give the young this freedom to be preyed on. That is, we protect them up to a certain age and say, no, 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 we're not going to let anybody give you any offers. And then that we're just going to completely block anybody offering you things up to a certain age. And then we, we say, okay, now you're on, now you're allowed to take offers knowing full well that, well, you're now pretty vulnerable to these sorts of offers. Although, you know, your 
youthful idealism is a attractive resource. That's part of why people do want to make these appeals to you, to a romance or a career or something, is because you have this youthful energy and, and enthusiasm that other people wouldn't have, and that's part of what gives you an in that you wouldn't otherwise have. And so I think we feel conflicted about that. I mean... And well, it's not just that. I think also over time, um, the territory shifts in terms of um, how much control we take. And I think we take kind of less and less. And like romance, right? Like you go back far enough and parents are going to be controlling the romances of their children. That is, we're not going to trust you to manage this territory on your own because you're just likely to like get infatuated and then idealize the person. Right. And now we don't think about it that way now. Um, I mean, people want to think... Oh. And then, I then, do. I'm thinking about it that way. That's what I'm saying to you. I'm saying, geez. Look well, over. you do that with your kids? Do you try to control their romances? Oh, I don't, yeah. But I still feel like I'm I'm letting them be at risk. That is, I, I feel yeah. a sense of exposing them to the world, like they're going through a jungle where there are predators and I'm letting them go, right? Right, right. But I, what I'm saying is the norm is now to let them go. That is, the norm is you don't control their romances. You are supposed to let them make those uh, make those decisions using the bad decision mechanism that they're going to use, which is naive over-evaluation of romance or something like that. Um, that That's like, let we're supposed to let them make those mistakes, right? Um, people are less forgiving about when you do that same thing, like as I did, you know, in my 30s when you're already married. <laughs> sort of the same thing as the teenager going through, right? right? I was just older. Um, um, but fundamentally, there is this very, actually very strong commitment with romance that you do um, uh, let the young be preyed on. Well, except we have also have strong notes trying to prevent, say, older people from inviting younger people into relationships. Like we were very wary of that age difference. Yes, apparently, and, and the rationale usually there is about predation, right? That's usually the story. Prey on one another. They're 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 supposed to only prey on one another. That's the idea, I guess, right? Apparently. They, um, because if they're only preying on one another, then we can only fault them for sort of um, accidentally failing, like as opposed to tr trying to bring about the bad result, which is what we're imagining. The old pe the old people can manipulate the the young people. Although for say schools or careers, we don't. I mean, you know, many people have said college is a big waste and you're spending way too much money and time going to college and we let colleges seduce students to spend many of their most valuable years going to school right and you you could say that's a similar way in which the older experienced group more mm. people to manage the uh propaganda is seducing the young people and using the ideals of the young people about school and the world and you might say, yeah. spend a few years out in the world before you go back to school. Maybe they'll, you know, you'll understand school better and understand what the value is. That that's a common piece of advice. Yeah. So I, um, I guess I think that the old people also tend to idealize school, like the people who are giving the children advice. Most older people, when giving children advice, advise them to go to school and be in school and stay in school, and go to college and all that. That's the more dominant form of advice. So it's not just that we're saying they should be predated upon. We just don't see, most people don't see it as predation. Even if there's evidence to that effect, they don't see it that way.
I think that's different. Whereas the romantic case, I do think they see it that way. Although if, if people are, say, trying to go into sports or acting or music as careers, often adults advise against that, right? And then yeah. people who are sort of the coaches and selling them musical instruments and acting classes, et cetera, could be more seen as predators. It's interesting because it's often like people will, like the parents might be against it, whereas the friends and the, um, you know, right, the coaches and just the, the, the world around that uh, pursuit would be, might be well before it. I was just visiting uh, Brazil and happened to be in a world of relatively young people and noticing that they completely accepted age differences in romance. And so they were not seeing that as predatory or problematic. And so, you know, our, and of course, so, so it might, it might be more of a local issue in our world recently than Right. And elsewhere. You can imagine that there's some world where people see education as more predatory than we do. Um, but I think it's, it's striking. If you think about this case of the parents being against the romance, um, or potentially against um, the risky career choices or a humanities major. A lot of students tell us, oh, I wish I'd want to major in philosophy. My parents, like, you know, they wouldn't be happy about it. I have to major in econ. Um, uh, and um, uh, it's just interesting to me that family is so regularly the source of this note of caution, right? So for both you and I, the thing pulling us in the direction of the unfree choice, as it were, uh, were our kids. And um, the thing pulling young people in the direction of the unfree choice when it comes to romance or career or whatever is often their parents. Um, so what do you make of that fact that um, family is uh, such a deep source of risk aversion? I guess... If I frame it in sacred terms, I'd say, you know, if you're offered a sacred quest, then the only thing that can really beat that is something else sacred. It, you know, profane as the alternative won't beat it. And so your, your children or your family are one of the most sacred things in your life. And if they advise you and ask you, then that's nearly as precious. I see. So if you were just like, but I won't make as much money over the course of my life if I do this versus this, that you won't be able to sell that to yourself. Right. Um, but for my parents to love me more or to respect me or to, you know, I owe them because of what they've all done for me or those things can move you more. Yeah, though there are a lot of sacred things. Right. And so, and maybe, maybe it's just the accident of the examples that family, but I do think family shows up in a lot of these things of pushing people towards being conservative and risk averse. And it's not like what pulls on the other side is, you know, health is also sort of sacred and so is religion. And so are a lot of the things, right? Um, um, Maybe, maybe family interestingly combines something like sacredness and fear, right? It's like sacred fear, such that you then are permitted to like have this. Um... I'm, I'm more drawn to this 
identity thing. That is, when are you willing to make a choice on your own or when do you rely on the social world around you? Mm. And so family is a big part of the social world around you where you're willing to sort of let them make choices on your behalf to a substantial degree. Okay, okay. That's that's helpful. So like so the point is that um you know the way that I was framing it earlier was like no one's ever going to say I made this decision because it's what other people thought was good like that. You know, no one no one puts that said that to themselves. But maybe we do sort of say that in the form of saying I made this decision for my we stayed together for the kids, right? Um where that is like a little bit like saying we let another voice be the deciding voice. Um, but that's because, you know, you, you identify with your kids. They are you, they're, yeah. Um, and so, um, it's with our kids maybe, or our parents to a lesser degree, um, that people are willing to do that. And and also that people are willing to demand that other people do that. Right. So like people are willing, like would be much more willing to demand of me that I do something for the sake of my kids than that I do something because society in general right. um, approves of it. And I guess this highlights a way in which family is still really central to us in ways we may not admit or acknowledge ordinarily. When, we, when we're making the biggest choices, the thing that will hold us back in a way that other things won't is family. So here's an interesting thing that we could compare our two cases, right? So um, let's suppose that by making the choice that you were making, you were um, risking your children's welfare. They were going to die, right? But they they might have a worse life because of this decision. Um, And that's my wife's and my wife's sanity to some degree. That would also give your kids a worse life. Let's just imagine we don't have to care about your wife because like somehow people really care about little kids like that. That's yeah. Think of the children, right? So they're going to be less there. But but let's say, you know, if, if you're risking your wife's sanity, you're also then risking your children's welfare because they have to be mothered by someone insane. Um, so um, um, so so you're doing something that's putting your children at risk. Um, and I was doing something of that kind, putting my children at risk. That is my children. It, it all worked out and they're fine, just like your kids are fine because it all worked out. But we but we put our children at risk. Now, here's the thing. Of all the times that I've told this story and of all the times that you've told this story, I doubt that anyone has ever brought up to you, wait a minute, how could you put your children at risk like that? Um, and yet I get I get that all the time, including like now in response to this, but, you know, including at the time, like there was ve- a very strong, why aren't you thinking of the children? Now, it might just be that people think of divorce as posing greater risks for children than this kind of um, career quest and failure. So maybe it's that. Well, I actually think um, often, you know, the mother focuses on the children and the father focuses on the wife. I think, in fact, that is men, I think, are more directly focused on their obligation to their wife mm. and less directly on the children, whereas the mother is more directly focused on the children. And so I think that's playing out in our examples here. I think I was more focused on what this would do for my wife. I see. And less directly on what it would do to the children. And I think that might fit traditional gender roles. Right. But I mean, so how many times when you've told the story have people... I haven't told the story very often, so... Yes, you have. I've heard you tell it multiple times. In fact, this is actually a really interesting feature of these events is that 
if you have one of these events in your life, and most people have like at least one, it'll show up when you tell the story of your life. Um, it'll routinely show up. And no matter the length you're given for telling the story of your life, sometimes you're only given like a minute or something. Condense it, but you'll, you'll always include this bit. This line, you went to grad school with children age zero and two. I've heard you say that so many times, but no, because it's drilled in my mind, the child age zero. Well, um, let me, let me rephrase it. Um, most of the time people tell the story, they're telling it to a relatively sympathetic audience who isn't going to complain about it. Whereas you have told these stories in unusual contexts where people are more inclined to complain. And so then you're going to hear what people might complain about. But most of the time when people tell these stories, nobody's complaining. Okay, but what about when you were, you, I guess maybe you weren't telling it when it was happening so much. Right. Okay, because I was, I was telling it that time too. And, right, uh, so that's also unusual. I see, I see. Okay, so you, it's sort of like the thing you've done is protect the story <laughs> and, and, and bring it out only in a context where it's like, look, it's all, it's all good, it's all worked out. And, 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 then it's, right. and then it's really a story, it's boasting, right? I'm a risk taker. And I took this risk and it worked out. And I'm, it, it's a way of saying I made myself and I made my career, right? Because there was really this choice point. And I, I, you know, and unlike people who just drifted along and stayed in school and whatever, I like, I made the decision to go back to school, right? So you can, you can then present yourself as being much more self-made and more the author of the result of the end result, which is why you, it would so regularly figure in your story of yourself. I'm just noticing here that uh, if you are telling a story to your family and children and grandchildren even about your life, I think you're less reluctant to do what Maxime is bragging because you're passing on a story that they can brag about too. They're going to be telling the story of their parents or grandparents and how their lives went. And they want a story they can embrace. Well, they, I mean, yes, that's true, but like you're you're very much not a bragger in general, and you are very prone to telling this story. Like as I say, I've heard it a bunch of times. I've heard it like on a number of podcasts. Um, and so I also think this is a really permissible form of bragging um, when you have succeeded in life, and then you find these um, this these these moments. People want to know the story. How did you become you? Right and. Uh, they want a narrative and a narrative has like, highlights of moments and then you're and then this is the kind of moment to, to offer them. It's only partially bragging. That is, I think if you say, you know, yes, I have this million dollars because I bought a lottery ticket. You're bragging about the fact that you won, but you're also acknowledging that this was a result of luck. And there's this other version of you who didn't win the lottery. Uh, and so you're you're saying Part of my success might have been because I took an unusual chance, and I'm admitting that that unusual chance could have gone badly, and I'm acknowledging that that's the cost that this came yeah, from. It's true. it's true that people really like to emphasize the luck around these things as well, um, uh, that it could have gone badly. And so maybe that adds this veneer of humility that then makes this kind of an acceptable, like this, this is like almost like the prototypical story that people are going right. to, successful people are going to tell about themselves. It's going to be one of these stories. It's going to be, um, you know, I was at a crossroads. There was the chancy way. There was the, the safer way. And I took the riskier way and it could have gone badly, but it worked out. Um, 
a lot of biopics basically have elements of this in their initial story. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the, exactly. The, the actor, the director, the musician or whatever. They took some chances early on. There was lucky, something lucky happened. And then there was a takeoff. Yeah. And like, I, I, I think it's interesting that the, like the very same people around you who, when you're making such a decision are uncomfortable and they're like, what if it doesn't work out and whatever, those same people would eat up the biopic about someone else. Right. And yep. they want to hear the story. So people have both of these impulses, this self-protective impulse, and then they're, they, people like this story and they like the idea of taking the risk and then it working out. Um, and, uh, I mean, is that just near far? They don't like it when it's near, but they like it when it's far and when it's somebody else. I think this isn't that inconsistent. Uh, I think you can embrace both of those point of views and be pretty coherent about it. I think you can say, yeah, at the time it was a risky choice. And I was wary of it, and I'm glad it turned out well. But you could see the biopic and think, yeah, I don't want my kid to take that choice at that point. I'm glad it worked out for them, but I'm not going to, and, you know, think any, everybody should do it. Right, but um, when you say it was a risky choice and I'm glad it worked out, I don't, um, uh, I don't buy that that's how you viewed it at the time. That That's almost like, um, that's the air of faux detachment that you can right. slather on it now. At the time, you had to be passionate about it, right? You had to be like, look, I have to do this. It was the thing you said earlier. You didn't say, oh, it was a risky choice, but you know, maybe it'll work out. You said, like, I felt like I had to do it, right? And I said, I felt like I would be going through motions otherwise. And it's important to the making of these choices that we have that passionate response and people eat up that passionate response. They want to see that in the biopic. They want the, they want that moment. They find it really compelling. Um, and I do think there's a tension there that um, that we, we both find that really appealing, but then when the risks touch us personally, when we are the child or spouse or whatever of such a person, um, we're like, no, no, take the, take the safe road. Um, I think that's inconsistent. I think there's often this sense, certainly in the biopic of making a bet on who you are. <laughs> right. And so there's a, like, we talked about how you'd be a different person depending on what choice you made. And so there's a sense in which if you make this riskier choice, you're betting that you are a certain sort of person and that the world will, you know, agree with that. And now later on, you could say, turned out I was the sort of person I was hoping I would be and that, you know, therefore I, I sort of had faith in myself or something like right? that will often be the way you describe it. But in some sense, you, well, you, you weren't sure if you could be that sort of person and you were betting on your being that sort of person. And now later turned out that worked out and now that's an affirmation origin story it's like a superhero origin story basically you're the person you are now and i'm a professor say you're a married woman and the person we are at some point there was a choice to try to become that person right and this is the origin story the moment when we tried to be that person yeah okay good i think that that's um that's right so that's why these um 
these moments figure so largely in someone's tale of themselves because it's almost like my life your life didn't begin at birth it began at this point um and that's your origin story socrates in the um apology tells an origin story he's like i was walking along just a regular guy like the rest of you and then chirophon a friend of mine went to the oracle and he asked the oracle is anyone wiser than socrates and the oracle said no and then socrates is like okay i'm going to refute the oracle by showing that there is someone wiser than me and then he goes around and he dedicates his life to like showing that some here's someone who's wiser than me but that turns out they're not so i have to try the next guy no he's not either he's forever and, and and socrates is like forever literally forever in that Socrates says, look, you can put me to death and you can send me to Hades and I'm just going to go down there and I'm going to refute the people down in Hades. <laughs> like, this is it. I'm just, I'm, I'm committed, right? This is who I am. This is my origin story. So, yeah, I think that that's right. But I think that the fact that it's an origin story casts real doubt on the framing that we have of where you and I have repeatedly said, it's like, it worked out. You, we both feel like it worked out. What does that even mean, right? Like, suppose you hadn't gone, um, suppose you hadn't taken this and you'd continued in AI research and you would have done some giant breakthrough and now we would have, like, the conscious AI because of the research that you would have been doing if you hadn't gone off to econ grad school or what if I stay married to Ben and because I stay married to Ben, I can't. Hey, okay, so sorry, we're coming back after uh, then we had a computer glitch and we... Robin couldn't hear me. So, um, so what I was saying was that both you and I view our decisions as successes, um, but we actually have no reason to do that. That is, we, I mean, we not no reason, but, um, you know, I, I was saying it could have been the case that if you had stayed uh, in AI, you would have had this major breakthrough and we would have, uh, you know, artificial general intelligence now because of whatever thing you discovered. And if I had stayed married, maybe some amazing thing would have happened to me. Maybe I would have had like a religious conversion and I would look back and say, ah, oh, imagine if I had, you know, succumbed to tem- romantic temptation that, t- that time. I would never have had this amazing religious conversion uh, that's like, you know, profoundly changed who I am. And we don't, we're not able to rule out those possibilities of what could have happened to us had we gone with the other route. Yet we, we seem awfully confident and being like being able to assert, yeah, it worked out for me. How do you know it worked out for you? So my colleague, Brian Kaplan, likes to emphasize how he's really attached to the particular children he has. And then he had waited a year and had children. Those wouldn't be the same children. And he therefore is more endorsing the choice he made to have the children he did than the alternative. And so if, if we just become a different identity by a certain key choice in our life, then we might be just more interested in embracing the identity that we did become rather than the others that we could have. In some sense, that's just a different creature. That's not me. Okay. So um, one thing we can do is we can now um, denigrate, in fact, to the assessment of this choice as having worked out by saying, well, you don't actually know that this choice worked out. You're just on the side of yourself, obviously. So you're obviously on team self that came about as a result right. of choice. And you'd always be on that team. Um, and I mean, I guess that in a way that seems fair enough, except the, the dangerous part is how often these stories are told to like young people who want to think about their lives and think about their decisions. And they're just the, they're just the quintessence of bias, right? I mean, right. It's like. So here, here's a correction to the bias. Yeah. Which is at least 
some of the most heart-wrenching stories for me are of people who who made the risky choice and then it failed and they still think yeah but i i went for it i took a chance right and they are embracing the failed choice as saying you wouldn't really really be a human or you wouldn't really be me or you know i would be mp if i hadn't have gone for it because it was just so important to be the sort of person who would go for it that's not at all correcting the bias. That's the that's the same person saying, I'm on team me. Right? right. Everyone's always on team them. Whatever decision they make. So the real though, the real correction of the bias would be talk to the person who regrets it. Say, I should have made that the real me is that other person right. choice. I never got to experience being the real me because I made the wrong decision. That how, people very rarely say that. And how many biopics are telling that life story? Right. Well, you know, in general, biopics tell the life story of somebody. Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, like, you know, um, oh, that movie Corsage. Yeah, right, right. Yes, yeah. that was it. So that was like, um, you know, this this um, queen who is confined by her being a queen and then um, it never really achieves anything and then commits suicide. Um and that's a biopic, and it's not. She, she seemed to have embraced her choice there, though. She did not regret her choice. She, well, I mean, in the end, she committed suicide, but she did. She still embraced the choice. She was not. She did not step down from her queen role. She did not say, "I abdicate. Somebody else should be queen," or something. Right? I mean, she literally groomed someone else to look like her and stayed. <laughs> okay, that's not the same as abdication. I mean, some queens have actually abdicated. But I bet you'd get biopics of them too. You would not get biopic. I mean, people just any anyone who's in the queen vicinity can get a biopic. <laughs> right, but so, look, I mean, right, but take the famous queen, you know, uh, king of England who abdicated, right? Uh, you know, half a century yeah. ago, right? Yeah. His story is embracing who he became. He doesn't regret his choice, right? Right. So we almost never see someone who regrets a central life choice. Right, so can we think of an example of a biopic about somebody who who has really serious regrets? You might think of somebody who chooses to be a criminal and then sees the light or some other way, or somebody who has a conversion, perhaps, who then regrets their earlier choice, but they embrace their later choice. Yeah, there's that. There, that, that's right. There's a book, Atonement, right, um, where this person makes like a bad choice that sort of destroys the lives of these two people, but but then she sees the light. Right, and then... There's always this, she's seeing the light. I mean, if you regret it, you see the light, right? Regretting it is involved seeing the light. Like with apology. Yeah. <laughs> right, in some sense, like embracing the regret and still regretting and not changing is like... Like, I'm glad, I'm glad to be me. It's, it's <laughs> once again another way to be glad to be you. There's this question, is there really any such thing as not being glad to be you? Is that a state you could possibly be in? And maybe it is, but maybe it's called something like depression. And when you're in that state, you don't tell a story about yourself. You just don't tell Nobody wants to hear it. Maybe nobody wants to hear it, or maybe you just don't tell it. Maybe maybe the point is that 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 seeing your life as worthy of narrativization is already means identifying with it to the degree that you're like, Yes, I want to be me and like thus I want to tell the story of the choices that made me me. And I mean, as we you know discussed once with apology, you could regret the choice, but still not repudiate the person you were as that chooser, right? So in some sense, 
that's the higher standard we're asking here. Everybody's embracing who they were, even if they made bad choices, right? And so what would it look like to not only repudiate the choice you made, but repudiate the person you were in making that choice while still being that person, not having changed or reformed? Right. You know, arguably this happens in a certain way to Iago at the end of the fellow. Um, like when all of his connivings are discovered and he's asked to explain himself and just refuses. And he's like, I'm not gonna speak another word. And he doesn't speak another word, but then you know, right. he's on the left of the flight, but he won't he doesn't speak anymore. Right. And you get this sense of like he has nothing to say for himself. And his plans were predicated on the thought that he was clever enough to make something work out. So like he would regret, right? He would regret that he had done the thing, but he wouldn't have he hasn't changed, he hasn't seen the light. He's not like morally enlightened in the way that Othello is. Othello like realizes he made a bad decision in murdering Desdemona. But yeah, right. doesn't realize that. So he's might be the he might be the image of the person who doesn't regret. Um and maybe there's a reason why you couldn't call that play Iago. You know, I mean, Iago, we, we spend more time attending. Iago's way more interesting than Othello. We spend more time attending to him. But because he's just the unreconstructed villain, he makes a bad decision. He would regret the bad decision, but he hasn't come to see the light and he hasn't come to any kind of moral enlightenment. And he's just reduced to speechlessness. That that kind of a person can't be um, represented as the center of a narrative, even if in some sense he really is the center of the narrative. And that might give some insight into depression. Because depression also is a silencing condition. And you might say, well, depression is Iago's condition, i.e. it's the condition of, okay, I, I guess I kind of regret this person that I am, but I haven't chosen a new person. And now I don't have anything to say until I can pick a new person. And that's what it is to be de depressed in some senses, to be stuck, not being happy with who you are, but not having a voice to express that because you to for a voice you need to pick a new person to be right it's like um that's right it's like you're unhappy with who you are from the position of still being that person um and like it's like a um a thing that i say you know what one of my very few idiosyncrasies in relation to my teaching assistants is that i care a lot that papers be returned very quickly um and uh, uh, papers and exams, like the turnaround time should be short. And so I always work with them. I say, let's pick the dates for the papers to make sure that you can get to them immediately. And the reason is because I think students very, very, very quickly come to see the paper or the exam as having been written by a past self. Um, a very little time passes between when right. they're, and, but you point out mistakes, but that's not them anymore. That was the old them. They've already. Right. Um, and there's a literature in criminal punishment that says the, you know, how soon you're punished matters at least as much as how much you're punished. Mm. And so having the criminal system take a long time to make decisions is pretty bad from the point of view of discouraging things, because by the time you're punished, you no longer see yourself as the person who committed the crime. And we're punishing somebody else. I'm starting to have internet glitches, so there are, I think maybe it's time to end. <laughs> okay, nice talking, Agnes. <laughs>